Well, it happened on the day after Christmas 2004. An earthquake in the Indian Ocean caused a huge tsunami that killed over 250,000 people. In the days following Christmas, we turned on our TVs and watched the unspeakable devastation and loss of life. It was one of the greatest natural tragedies uh, in this generation's lifetime. But I don't know if any of you remember, there was a story that was quite heroic, a number of them, but one of them that caught my attention uh, that came out of that disaster. A little girl from the UK named Tilly Smith, that was her name, Tilly Smith, she and her family were vacationing on the beach in Thailand, and she saw what was happening before it happened. Just two weeks earlier, Tilly Smith had been in her geography class, and and she and her classmates had been studying about tsunamis, and what are some of the signs that a tsunami is about to come, and while Others on the beach were so curious about the water rushing away from the beach. They went toward the water till he knew what that meant. And so she went to her mom with a great sense of urgency and said, Mom, we got to get off the beach. A tsunami is coming. But the Smith family not only saved themselves, but they looked around at all the people there on the beach in Thailand and they began to warn them, clear the beach. You got to get out of here. You got to move to higher ground. A tsunami. And most people didn't know what that meant. This huge, like, it's like a tidal wave. This huge wave is coming. It's devastating. We got to get out of here. Clear the beach. It's a documented story. Because of their persistence in sounding the alarm that day and warning people, Tilly Smith and her family not only were able to get to higher ground, but they saved the lives of over 100 people that were on their stretch of the beach that day before the tsunami hit. When I think about that inspirational true story, it's really kind of like what we're called to do, isn't it? As we study the book of Revelation and we hear about the tsunami of God's judgment that is coming, we're called not only to save ourselves, but to sound the word of alarm. Chapter 8 begins like this. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, in the Old Testament, anytime you see silence in heaven, it's like heaven is saying, shh, hush up now. God is about to do something in the earth that is shattering. God is about to move forth in judgment, so be silent. That's typically what that means. And up until now, the focus has largely been on getting ourselves ready. Whether he's talking to the people in the churches in the seven cities to which he writes, or or whether he's talking about the judgments that we looked at last week, And the scenes before that in heaven, in the throne room of God, the message would basically be this. Look, are you ready? Get ready, because here's what's coming down. 
But today, we see the focus shifts. And the focus shifts from not only get yourself ready, but do what Tilly Smith did. Help get others ready as well so they can escape the devastation that is to come. And you know, folks, that's really our goal. Sometimes I put it like this when people ask me, what are you guys all about? I sometimes say, well, our goal is to go to heaven when we die and to take as many people as we can with us. And so today, we're going to study about the seven trumpets here in Revelation. This is the second set of seven, by the way, if you're carefully following along. The three sets of seven that we see here that have tremendous meaning about God's judgment and how he's dealing with people in the earth are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Now, I would suggest to you that John is using a sort of literary device here called progressive parallelism. Ooh, doesn't that sound fancy? Well, you can really impress your friends and family with that one. Progressive parallelism. What is that? I believe he's not giving us a sense of uh, a a series of chronological events here, I don't think. I, I think he's showing the same event just from different camera angles. And it intensifies. It's progressive in its intensity. It's progressive parallelism. You might think of it like this. All of you married people, all you guys out there who are married, if you've been married very long, you've probably discovered that your wife, if she's like most women I know, she has a deep intuition, and usually it's pretty accurate. It's an uncanny sense of things that it's almost like a sixth sense it's almost like esp and if you're a married guy out there you've discovered your wife has esp but guys don't forget this while our wives have esp we have espn (laughs) and that's very important to remember okay and so what you learn on espn is it'll show something that happened in a game And, oh, you didn't quite see it, but then you see another camera angle and go, oh, his foot was out. I thought he was in. Oh, oh, wow, his knee did hit the ground before that ball popped out. And you see these different camera angles, and all the time you're seeing the play more clearly. I think that's kind of what's happening here. Now, trumpets were very significant in the Old Testament. I, don't, I won't take time to go into all that trumpets were used for. It's, it makes an intriguing study, and I did that study this week. It's astounding how many things trumpets were used for, but primarily they were used for announcements, and typically announcements of warning. And so that's what we see here today. And the warning is get yourself ready and then get others ready. If you've ever flown on a plane, you've heard that safety speech, that obligatory speech that happens at the start of every flight, right? Where the flight attendants stand up there, and usually you can tell they don't want to be doing this yet another time, but you'll hear this as a part of the speech. In the unlikely case of an emergency, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen. Oxygen mask will fall down, and you know those famous words, Secure your own mask first, 
before helping others. <laughs> That's kind of the message in Revelation so far. Are you ready? How are you doing? What is your own health? But today, the message shifts to helping others. So let's jump in in Revelation chapter 8. We're going to start here in verse 6. Revelation 8, verse 6, the tour bus is moving very fast. We can't cover every verse by any stretch. But I want you to see what these seven trumpets reveal. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, let me just pause there. You're going to hear that fraction, a third, a lot in this section. Again, I'm just telling you what I believe about the nature of this literature. I don't believe we should look for a literal third of these things to be burned up. I believe that when John uses fractions, he is saying this judgment is only partial. It's only partial. In other words, here's the bad news. There's more to come. And when you study the seven bowls you see that indeed that is exactly what happens. The devastation, the judgment, the calamity becomes more intense. Let's read on, verse 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the ships were destroyed. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I saw an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Now, even if you've grown up in church, chances are you've never heard this. Here's why. This doesn't tend to make the flannel graph in the Sunday school class, does it? I mean, you, you can't easily reenact this with puppets, and even if you did, you'd quickly be accused of terrorizing the children. So if you're visiting with us today, I just want you to know that we're not teaching this right now to your second graders in kids' celebration, right? These aren't quaint bedtime stories that you kind of read to your children before they fall asleep at night. This is intense stuff, and as you keep on reading through chapter 9, you see it just keeps on coming. Now, I, I want to say a word of those to you who 
belong to Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, you're saved and you know you're saved, you know the word this ought to conjure up in you as you read this? There ought to be one overwhelming feeling you walk away with and it is gratitude. Gratitude. Because whatever your tribulational view may be, and I won't go over those again, whatever your view may be, one thing is for sure, you are going to be saved. You're not going to suffer what Revelation calls the second death, which is eternal separation from God. Because of the blood of Jesus, just like the Israelites, during their, before their exodus from Egypt, they put the blood of a lamb over the door frames of their house, and they were spared the judgment of God in a similar way, the blood of Jesus, our trust in Jesus and what he did for us saves us from the judgment of God. So that should be your feeling if you're a believer. You should be so ecstatic. You should be so grateful to God. But can I tell you, if you're not a believer and you're reading this, I believe your overwhelming feeling could be, should be concern. Concern. Because what it's describing here is utter chaos and devastation. When we have an event like happened recently in Paris just yesterday, we get a little taste, just a tiny little taste of the kind of chaos, fear, and insanity that pursues when a small group of people decide to wreak havoc. But we're talking about something here on a scale far beyond anything any of us have ever experienced. And so God is calling us today to sound the alarm. Now, you may be sitting there reading this going, why are these trumpets, why is this devastation so harsh and terrifying? Why is God so urgent here that he wants us to sound the alarm? Here's why. The effectiveness of an alarm is in direct proportion to how much you don't want to hear it. Now, these days, my alarm clock is an iPhone that I put about on the lowest sound setting. Oh, it's so pleasant. I mean, it's not really. It just takes away the idea of an alarm clock. There's no alarm to it at all. It's pleasant. It's just pleasant little sound that you wake up to. Oh, I guess I ought to get up. It's not really an alarm. But when I was a teenager growing up on the farm, I had a real alarm clock. It was one of these metal jobs. It had these bells on the top of it, literally these pieces of metal that clanged against the other pieces of metal. It was obnoxious. This was the most raucous alarm clock you've ever seen, and you couldn't control the sound. There was no low setting and high setting. There was just sound. It was crazy. And the effectiveness of an alarm is in direct proportion to how much you don't want to hear it. And here's the deal, gang. This is not in your notes. It's not on the screens. But when you go on into chapter 9, 
He says, I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the abyss came locusts. And you go on and you read that, and these locusts had faces like humans and hair like women's hair and teeth like lion's teeth. And they had the ability to torment people for five months. And then it says this strange phrase, during those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. Wow. God is sounding the alarm loud here, but here is to me the strangest verse in all of the book of Revelation. You know what it is? To me, the most difficult to understand passage in the entire book of Revelation, it's found in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Look at it with me. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You have got to be kidding me. Even after that kind of alarm, even after that kind of devastation, people still push God away and say, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do my own thing. You've got to be kidding me. But have you ever seen that happen in your life? Maybe that's a part of your story. Or maybe someone you love and care about, that's a part of their story. One thing is for sure, C.S. Lewis' words were right. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He, he tends to shout to us in our pain. And while the basic desire of God is for us to turn to him out of his kindness, that's what the Bible teaches, you know. The Bible teaches that God takes no delight in this kind of thing. God wants us to turn to him because of his kindness to us. That's what Romans teaches in chapter 2, verse 4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But remember Lewis's words. Sometimes that's not enough for people. He whispers to us in our pleasures. He shouts to us in our pain. It usually takes more than God's kindness to turn us around. Would you agree? Have you ever seen that? Oh, kindness often doesn't get a a person's attention. And so God, listen now, God's kindness has become severe. But are you listening to me? Even the devastating things of which we just read are the kindnesses of God because their design is to get people to repent, to turn around, but still they do not repent. I went to school, high school, with a young man named Ricky Moore. Ricky was a very popular guy, good-looking guy, basketball player, athletic. Almost everybody liked Ricky, easy to talk to. 
But Ricky probably had some real demons inside that kind of drove him to some pretty bizarre behaviors. And after a while, he dropped off the basketball team in high school because he was really becoming kind of a teenage alcoholic. And I was asked to eulogize Ricky at our 10-year high school reunion. Can you believe it? We had our 10-year high school reunion. I was asked to say a word about Ricky. He was that popular, and he had passed away because as his behavior became increasingly bizarre, he and a group of friends had finally one night, they'd gotten into this thrill-seeking thing of going out on a major highway and lying down on the middle of the highway on the yellow stripe. hopefully to get some kind of rush that maybe they wouldn't get hit and the car would come as close as possible, but they would still make it. And one night, Ricky had been hit by a truck going 70 miles an hour as he was lying there. So I was asked to eulogize him. And how, how do you say, what do you say to a guy? Because, see, I knew the story. I had talked to Ricky numerous times as a fellow ball player and, Hey, man, how's it going? Hey, Ricky, I know you and your family. You go to the Baptist church over there out near your, where you live. Uh, hey, what do you think about all that? I'd had so many conversations with Ricky about the gospel. In fact, once I'd been asked to go and preach at Ricky's church on a Sunday morning, and there was Ricky. He didn't want to be there, but his family kind of made him go, and there was Ricky. And he heard the gospel, and he heard the warnings, and People who loved him and cared about him over and over reached out. Do you know anybody like Ricky? Do you know anybody where you just wonder, what is it going to take? But he just kept pushing God away and getting further and further away from God. The message today is pretty simple for us. God is saying to us, particularly in chapters 10 and 11, In view of the tsunami of judgment that's coming, I want you to be bold witnesses. God says, I want you to be my bold witnesses. And there are three witnesses mentioned here. In chapter 10, there's John himself as he receives a sort of commissioning from God. And then in chapter 11 are two other witnesses. They're not named but they kind of have the characteristics of Moses and Elijah. But let's look at a part of this commissioning that John received in chapter 10 in verse 8. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Now, that scroll, (coughs) that scroll is the word of God. Remember that. It's the counsel of God. It's this amazing message from God that he's given us. And notice in verse 9, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, these are strange words, take it and eat it. By the way, that's reminiscent of what Ezekiel was challenged to do in the Old Testament. The references and allusions to the Old Testament just keep on coming. Virtually every verse is connected to the Old Testament in some way. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. 
it, t- it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my t- stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You say, what does that mean? Doesn't that seem strange that he was given the word of God to eat? It seems a little odd, doesn't it? Unless you were a paper eater as a kid, and then it may seem totally normal. I don't know. To you, it may seem totally normal. It may seem like the right thing to do. I don't know. But there's a message here in this. What that eating of the scroll, eating the word of God, it, it's an, a common Old Testament metaphor Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, Jeremiah says, Thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I've been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Here's the deal. God wants us to ingest his word, to embrace it so that it becomes a part of us. He wants to do something in us before he does something through us. And the most powerful witnesses, the most bold and effective witnesses for God are the women and men who have eaten the scroll. They've taken the truth of God in. They live it. They wrestle with it. They meditate on it daily. And God uses them as his bold witnesses in the world. How are you doing with your witness for God? Notice the sour and sweet part. When we ingest the word, it does, it's a powerful and wonderful thing for us. It's so sweet as we see the blessings and promises and the truth of God. But there's a sour part to that because people don't always want to receive it. Now, when we come down to chapter 11, starting in verse 15... We see again that Christ's kingdom has arrived here. And all of you folks who enjoy Handel's Messiah, you will recognize in these next few verses a lot of the biblical inspiration that inspired Handel to write his classic Messiah. Let's look at a few of these verses. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, right? That's where Handel got it, right here. This is the whole scene that inspired the core message of Handel's Messiah. Many other scriptures are used and reflected on, but this is the core right here. This is where the inspiration came from. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell down and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great. And then notice this part and for destroying those who destroy the earth then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning rumblings, pills of thunder an earthquake and a great 
hailstorm. The time has come for judging the dead. In other words, the time has come for the end of time. And since Jesus is coming soon, he wants us to be his bold witnesses in this world. And so for the few minutes we have remaining, I want to talk to you about how we can do that. But here's my concern. When I even say the word bold witnesses, my concern is that some of you have this real negative picture in your head of what that means. Perhaps you think of the street preacher down on the corner that everybody wants to get away from. Or perhaps you think of the person who knocks on your door just at dinner time and they're all smiles, they've got a cheeky grin on and a pad of paper and they say, hey, I'm just here in your neighborhood doing a survey. You say, okay, well, that'll be fine, I'm, I'm eating, but all right, go ahead. I, I'm just trying to do a survey of why people are going to hell and I wonder why you're going. You know, that kind of person. God, oh, dude, please, I'm having dinner or maybe the coworker who really does love the Lord, but she just never has learned how to represent Jesus well and tends to use the word of God as a club and beat people over the head with it. So when you think of bold witness, maybe that's what comes to your mind. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about representing Jesus in such appropriate and winsome ways that God uses you marvelously to turn people to Christ. That's what I mean by a bold witness. So in the few minutes we have remaining, I'm going to quickly mention five approaches to that. If you're writing notes, you might want to write these down in your notes. The first I'll mention is what you could call the relational approach. Now, here's the deal. Every one of us has people in our orbit, what I call concentric circles of concern concentric circles of concern. There are people in our orbit. Some of them we barely know. We see them, we may not even know their name. We see them down at the gym, we say, hi. we may only know their first name. We may see them in the office or going to the office. It may be someone at a gas station or a convenience store or at the coffee shop. But they're in our orbit. Others are closer. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's someone you reconnected with recently on Facebook, someone from high school. But we've got this people in our orbit. And here's what I want you to take away about this. None of those people are there by accident. God has allowed, listen, God has allowed every one of those people in your relational orbit to be there on your stretch of the beach. And the tsunami is coming. And the question is, what are we going to do to help show them the love of God and get them to higher ground, the higher ground of the cross, which alone is a place of safety? The second approach is the invitational approach. This one's very simple. George Barna, the most respected statistician in our country today, and certainly in Christian circles, has found out that 25% of Americans say they would attend church if one of their friends invited them. Think of that. 25%. Sure. I'd, yeah, I'd be glad to go. One of my friends invited me, of course. I'd love to go to church with them. 
just a simple invitation. So if every one of us just invited one person, we'd immediately have to add another service. There wouldn't be enough room. And yet the truth is that everyone who's come to Christ at grace first had to come here at least once. If they came to Christ at grace, somehow they... They had to come here at least once. And what I've found is that virtually no one stumbles in on their own. Virtually everyone I've talked to, with almost no exceptions, came as the result of an invitation. Third approach is the testimonial approach. Now, here's the truth about being a bold witness. Many shy away from being a bold witness because we don't know what to say and we don't know how to say it. As the Billy Graham team has done surveys and taken, uh, done case studies throughout decades now of evangelism, they find those are the top two objections to sharing your faith. I don't know what to say, I don't know how to say it, and usually fear is added to that. Maybe it's better if I just don't say anything. I may not have all the answers. You see, the erroneous thinking there is that God is calling us to be defense attorneys, He's not. Forget the defense attorney thing. Yeah, you need to be able to give it a reason for the hope you have. I get that, yeah. We need to be decent apologists when the time comes. I get it. First Peter 3.15. But don't think you're a defense attorney. You're primarily a witness. And there's a big difference between a defense attorney and a witness. Defense attorneys are professionals, This is what they do. They know all the little tricks and how to use casuistry to trick people up. A witness just tells what you've seen and experienced. So just be like the guy in John 9 that Jesus healed from blindness since birth. When they came and asked him these tough theological questions, who is Jesus? What have you got to say? He said, look, I I don't know the answer to all this thing, but this I know Once I was blind, and now I see. So just share confidently what Jesus has done and what he is doing in your life. The testimonial approach is very, very powerful. Fourth, the financial approach. The financial approach. For every Christian, especially every member of this church, this should be a part of what we do to prepare the world for Christ's return. By the way, that's why every single week, every single week, we receive a free will offering. Every week. I'm happy, happy. In fact, no, let me change the word. I'm thrilled to invite people and challenge people to participate in the Great Commission. Why wouldn't I be? It's the greatest work in the world. It's more significant than anything you've done all week, most likely, or anything I've done. He wants us to get involved in helping get the people ready that he's placed on our stretch of the beach. And one of the best ways we can act on this passage and help sound that alarm of warning is to help contribute to that financially. Because God has given this church, thanks be to his name, a very positive testimony in the community, and it only grows. And finally, 
what I'll call the tangible approach. In one sense, all of these could fall under this category. But the Bible says that as Christians, we're to be known by our love. That's what marked the early Christians. They cared for the poor and the downcast, the orphan and the widow, the people that were marginalized. And that's what we do through our 19 partners, our Grace in Action partnerships and our small group outreaches and our individual kindness that we show day by day to try to help people. One of my favorite songs is the same title as this sermon, People Get Ready. Our creative team recently did a little project with Travis Ballard and they put together a, a little music video that, with that song, People Get Ready. And we're going to listen to that together. But as we do, here's my challenge to you. As we listen to this music video, and I'll be back right at the end of it just to wrap up with a quick word. I want you to think about some of the people, as you listen, would you think about some of the people that God has put on your stretch of the beach? And what is your responsibility to help them get ready? Let's listen together.
Amen. Good job. Good job, guys. Tilly Smith, 10 years old, had some information other people didn't have. And she knew what was about to come. Thanks be to God, because she acted, sounded the alarm. Over 100 people on her stretch of the beach that day were saved. What are you going to do to help the people on your stretch of the beach? Father, we want to represent you well. We want to give people the right impression of who you are because you've given us insight into what is coming. Help us to be ready, God, and help us to get others ready so that not only we can be saved, go to heaven when we die, but thanks be to God, we can take a whole lot of people with us. That is our prayer. That's our passion, and that is our desire in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Rex, for that message. Would the ushers?